Welcome to the Sermon Podcast for Canton Church, a campus of Mount Perrin North. We exist to help people live a Christ-centered life, and we hope that you are encouraged by today's message. Have you ever known something was going to happen that you didn't want to happen, and then it happened? Like, yeah, just think in your life right now, something that you, you just knew, like, it's going to happen. I don't want it to happen, and then it happened. Like, think about it. You know, there's like that girl in your class. She's obviously the most popular girl in your class. Man, she's so rude to you. And she was like just mean and just, I mean, just not nice. She wasn't a nice girl. But then she won most popular girl in your class. Man, wasn't that so frustrating? Like, shouldn't there be other voting, you know, qualifications other than just being popular for that? What about the couple that you know? Like, they're just like, Mr. and Mrs. like goody two-shoes, perfect, like they've got perfect hair, they've got perfect teeth. Like you go to their house and you see their picture in the frame and you assume it's the picture that came with the frame, but no, it's just them, they're just that good looking. Like you just, don't you just hate people like that? Like they got engaged with the perfect engagement story and they got married in the most beautiful wedding ever and then their kids are perfect and then like they, he got the raise and like then she got the, she won the new car like on the radio. Like don't don't you just hate people? Don't you just want to like punch people like that in the face? Like there's just something like you, you can admit that this morning. This is a group therapy session today. Maybe it's just me, but don't you like there's something that you know is going to happen. You don't want it to happen. And then it happens. Like, isn't that so frustrating when that happens? Like, you don't want it to happen, but you just kind of know like it's this is the way life works. Like this is just what's going to happen. Well, that's kind of where we pick up the story as we look to conclude this story of Jonah. We've been tracking with Jonah for three weeks up to today. And the story of Jonah is a story that many of us know. We're familiar with this story because it's this guy who got, you know, eaten by a whale, but he didn't die. And eventually the whale vomited him up on the island. That's kind of what we know, right? But what we've looked at over the last three weeks is that God called Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh. Jonah was the prophet of God. He said, go to the city of Nineveh and preach against its wickedness. And so Jonah, like any good, you know, God-following prophet would do, he turns his back on the will of God, and he goes by way of Joppa to the city of Tarshish, which is 3,000 miles away in the opposite direction. And on his way to Tarshish, God sends a storm while he's on a boat with these sailors, and God sends the storm to get his attention, and the sailors eventually say, what do we have to do to get the storm to stop? And he's like, hey, throw me overboard. And so they eventually do... And as luck would have it, or really if you read the story right, the sovereignty of God, God sent a big old fish, and he's swimming underneath the boat right at that exact moment. And so they throw Jonah overboard, and what you just saw on the screens is that this, you know, this big old fish, which is only mentioned in three verses in the entire story, he comes and he, he kind of swallows Jonah, and Jonah lives for three days and three nights in the belly of this fish. And then in the midst of that three days and three nights, Jonah eventually repents and asks God for a second chance. And so the whale spits Jonah back up on dry land. And then Jonah gets a word from God a second time. And then he goes to Nineveh and he goes into the city of Nineveh, kind of part of the way into the city. And he only says eight words, which is what we talked about last week. He says that in 40 days, God's judgment's going to kind of rain down on Nineveh. And in those eight words, God, and really maybe the fear of the Lord, turns all of the hearts of all 120,000 people or so in Nineveh back to God. And they repent, and then God relents and does not destroy the city and does not destroy the people of Nineveh. And that's where we pick up the story in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, and then we're going to jump into chapter 4. This is what it says. 
When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. This is talking about the city of Nineveh. Continue reading in chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. What? What? Like, did you hear why he's upset? He's upset because 120,000 wicked people received the grace of God and repented of their sins, and God in his compassion, did not destroy them. What? Like, he's so upset about this. He's angry with God so much that he says, okay, God, if that's just what you're going to do, then just go ahead and kill me. You ever said anything that just doesn't make sense, really, when you pull it outside of context? Like, you ever been in an argument with maybe a spouse or a loved one or a friend or on your job or what, and you say something and you say it, you're just well intended, you're like, well, fine, if you, you know, and you just fill in the blank with something, and then like 10 minutes later, you're in the other room and you're like, what, what did I say right there? That doesn't even make sense. Like, I don't know if Jonah felt that way, but I kind of feel like, perhaps, in, in the proper context, Jonah's like, what did I say? <laughs> Wait a minute. I told God to kill me because 120,000 people received the message of the gospel and repented. Like, Jonah's angry here. In the first few verses of Jonah chapter 4, in response to what we read at the end of Jonah chapter 3, Jonah, keep in mind, a man who received the grace and mercy and compassion of God in the belly of a fish because of his own disobedience is now angry that someone else received the grace and compassion and mercy of God. I know none of us have ever done that. I know none of us in this room, i got an amen over here and i got a hand raised, but none of us have ever done that, right? That we know we have received, for those of us that have, we've received the grace and the compassion and the mercy. We have repented of our sins. We have asked God for forgiveness. God gave us a second chance or a third chance or an eighth chance or an 82nd chance. And we've received that and we're thankful for that. And then when God gives someone else a second chance that we think doesn't deserve it, we get upset about it. Like, don't miss the irony here of what Jonah is mad about. He is quoting Exodus where he's saying that I knew that you were compassionate. I knew that you were abounding in love. I knew that you were slow to anger. Like, he's talking about something. He recognizes the entire narrative of God here. And he, a man who received God's grace, received God's forgiveness, received a second chance, is upset that 120,000 wicked people also received the same mercy and compassion of God. Now let's keep reading because it gets even more confusing beginning in verse 4. But the Lord replied, he doesn't reply like I would reply, so we should all be thankful today that I'm not God. Because Jonah is just like, just kill me now. Instead, this is what God says. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. And there he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. 
But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. You, you still with me? You hanging with me? All right, hang with me here. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he, Jonah said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. Third time he said that. Verse 10, but the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there were more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? Now, if you're not with me right now, if you're really confused, that's okay. Like, welcome to the party. This, in these seven verses of Scripture, could be a little confusing. So we want to try to break this down into some bite-sized chunks. But here's what we need to understand. What we read in the first three verses of Jonah chapter 4 is really the gist of the conversation that takes place in the next seven verses. Jonah's angry, and God is confronting Jonah's anger by giving him an illustration and helping him understand and asking insightful questions. Now, the first truth that I think is important for all of us to understand is that God is not intimidated by your anger. He's not intimidated by your questions. And he's not intimidated by your entitlement. Because if you read right here, what Jonah was saying is, I'm entitled to grace, and they are not. God said to him later, hey, are you sad about, are you happy about the plan? Are you sad about the plan? He's like, yes, I am. Like, he's happy about things he didn't do for himself. He's sad about things that happened to something that he didn't do for himself. He didn't provide for himself. Like, there's a sense of entitlement here. And God is not like shunning him and pushing him away. He's just asking insightful questions that attempt to get to the heart of why Jonah feels the way that he feels. And so if you walked in today and some of the things that I'm saying, you go, man, I felt that way. I think that way. I'm not really sure. Like, I kind of identify with that. Guess what? God's not intimidated by that. It doesn't make you the world's worst person ever. It makes you human. And so today we want to kind of look at how we have some similarities here in the story of Jonah. Because what we understand is that Jonah is upset about what happened in Nineveh. And so he goes out of the city and he sits down where he can still see the city. And he sits down and he makes himself a shelter. Now, it's probably just kind of a little lean-to of some kind, but he just wants to keep the sun off of him. And so I don't know what he used, but he kind of builds a little, little shelter that he can kind of sit in for a while. And it says that he waits to see what happens to the city. Now, what was he expecting to happen to the city? Because what we just read in verse 10 is that God had already forgiven those people. He had relented, and he wasn't going to send the calamity and the destruction that he thought. So there is a sense, even in Jonah's heart, when he sees the response of the people... That God may still, because Jonah's upset about it, send judgment on those people. Jonah is positioning himself as a greater judge than God. I know you've never done that. I've never done it. I've only done it twice, but I've asked for forgiveness both times. Right? Where instead of allowing God to be the ultimate judge for people, even when they say that they're sorry... Even when they ask for forgiveness, even when they say that they've been saved, even when they say they've repented for their wrongdoing, I tend to sit over in my little shelter and look at them and go, well, let's just see. I'm just going to watch from a distance and see what happens because I'm not really sure that it's going to take with you. Like, I'm not really sure this one's going to stick. Like, like, you're not saved like I'm saved. You're just kind of saved like you experienced, like, a good service, and you responded, like, when the pastor was in prayer. Or, you know, maybe you heard a song that was really moving or something. So you just did something, but, like, you're still a terrible person. You're a wicked city. 
you know, in this metaphor. And so, like, you know, I'm just going to hang out over here, and I'm going to watch you from afar because I am sure that judgment is still going to come onto you because you're not as repentant as I am. You're not as deserving of God's grace and mercy as I am. And so I'm just going to sit over here in my little shack that I built, and I'm going to look at you, and I'm going to decide that you are less deserving of God's grace and less a recipient of God's grace than I am. That's what Jonah's doing. He's just sitting over here on the side. And so God does something that's really interesting and a little bit confusing here in this passage. He decides to engage Jonah as he sits in his place of judgment. So Jonah's sitting off to the side, looking out back at the city, kind of waiting to see what happens to the city there. And so God engages him in his place of judgment where he's at. And so God then sends this plant that grows up over top of Jonah to kind of keep the sun off of him, even better than his own shelter. So what Jonah was able to provide evidently was not as good as what God could provide in just a kind of a quick moment. Like a plant doesn't normally grow that fast to be able to cover over top of you. And so God sends something that shows that God's power and God's ability is greater than our own power. And so he sends this plant that overtakes Jonah and it protects him from the weather and the things that are going on around him. And Jonah, it says, is happy about that. So what we see is, again, that Jonah's okay receiving the gifts of God himself, but he's not okay with others receiving it. And then God sends a worm. That worm then brings the plant down, and and it destroys the plant. And so now Jonah's sad about it. And now, again, he, he goes to the extreme version of what he should feel. And instead of saying, man, I wish the sun wasn't on me anymore, he says, it'd be better for me to die. Right, This extreme view, because he's, he's kind of lost his ability to have proper perspective and a proper understanding of who God is and how God relates to all of mankind and not just to me. Right, We're all guilty of that, all of us. We only view God the same way that we view other people. How does it affect me? Like We don't really care that somebody else got the job promotion. We just care that we didn't get it. Right, We don't really care that other people have that nice of a house, we just care if it's nicer or less nice than our house, right? Everything is, how does this affect me? Ultimately, we're all seventh grade kind of boys and girls. Like, everything revolves around us. We are convinced that everything in the world, in the universe, is about how does this affect me and my friends and my life and my job and my money and my relationships and my situation. And so what we see here in this story is that Jonah's kind of playing this out. He's depicting this for us. And God is engaging him as he does that. And so this plant goes away. And then in the last couple verses, what we say right here is God says the same thing. He asks the same question. Is it right for you to be angry? Which is the first question he asks. Now he says, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? He's kind of getting into the root of the the issue for Jonah's heart. Ultimately, the first part was, is it right for you to be angry in general about what you're feeling about the people of Nineveh? Now it's, are you, is it right for you to be angry about what I provided for you and then I took away? You didn't do anything to provide the plant for yourself, right, Jonah? Like, I provided it for you, and then after that time, I took it away from you to prove something, to teach you something. And now you're upset about something that you didn't create yourself. Like, you didn't create it, you didn't provide for it, you didn't tend to it. I did all of that for you, and then when I choose to take it away, now you're angry. Is that right for you to be angry? And Jonah's like, yes, it is, and I'm so angry about it, I wish I were dead. Losing proper perspective, losing the, inability, kind of losing the ability to see God for who he is, how he interacts with us, and how he interacts with other people. Who God is in our lives, what God desires to do for us and through us and in us. And so then God 
in the last couple verses here as he's talking to Jonah. He says, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it. You, you've been focused on something that you didn't, you didn't make it, you didn't tend to. You had your focus, your energy, your emotions, you were happy, then you were sad. All of your energy on something because it affected you. Your mind was thinking about something. Your emotion, happy and sad, was all focused on something that I gave to you and then I took away because it affected you. He says, but listen, there's a bigger story being played out here. There's a larger thing happening. He said, it sprang up overnight, it died overnight. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left hand and also many animals. Here's what he's saying. He said, Jonah, you're so focused on you and how you feel about the city of Nineveh getting saved and now how you feel about what happened and now how you feel about this plant. Should I, the God who is writing a larger story than your individual story, not be concerned with 120,000 other people who need to also receive the compassion, grace, and mercy that I have available for them? Should I not be concerned about them? This is, the, this is the way he ends the book. Like if you've ever read a really good book and maybe your favorite book or your favorite story, it's a short story, it's a poem, very rarely, unless they're trying to prove a point or unless they're trying to kind of set you up for like the next chapter, the next story, the next kind of sequence or whatever, do they end the story with a question. Usually they resolve it. Corey and I finished a television show that we had been kind of binge watching on Netflix last night. And at the end of that show, like they just tied a bow around all the storylines. Like, everybody got in a relationship. Everybody got married. Everybody had the job they wanted. Like, every, it was exciting. It was happy. We, we turned the show off, and we were like, oh, that's great. Like, we just love it. Like, it just makes us feel warm and fuzzy, and we just love Like, we hugged each other. It was so exciting. Like, the show was over, and like, this was great. Like, I'm going to go to bed now. No, that's not how Jonah, that's not how Jonah ends. You know how Jonah ends? God asks him a single question. Should I not be concerned for the city of Nineveh? I think God, the ultimate author here, is using a pretty cool technique where he's not just talking to Jonah. He's talking to me. He's talking to you. Like, take out the city of Nineveh. Let's throw this up, guys. Should I not be concerned for... Like, who would you fill in that blank with that you're angry about? Like, you're sure God would save them, but it does not make you happy that God would do so. Like, I just wrote down some examples. These are random examples in no way kind of pushing anything other than just giving examples that are in the news. If the leaders of ISIS repented today, went on worldwide television, claimed that they had seen the errors of their ways, asked God for forgiveness, and they were going to spend the rest of their lives telling other people about Jesus. Would you sit outside of the city and look at them in judgment and go, yeah, what's your agenda here? Like, what are you, what are you really, really trying to do? I don't know if I believe this. I don't know if this is true. I, I think you're trying to manipulate the gospel here. If Caitlyn Jenner went on television tonight and said, I, I was wrong. I'm sorry. God's forgiven me. I'm going to go back and change everything that I've done over the last few months to the best of my ability. God's forgiven me. 
how would you respond to that? If your grandmother, uncle, brother-in-law, best friend, former best friend, co-worker, neighbor, who hurt you in unimaginable ways, who, who did something that destroyed portions of your life, your family, your story, if you received a letter in the mail from them today, I said, I'm sorry, but I want you to know that I was in church Sunday morning and God gloriously saved me. Would you be able to forgive them as God did? Because I think what God is asking to Jonah, what God is asking to me and you is, should I not have concern for members of ISIS? Should I not have concern for refugees? Should I not have concern for transgendered people? Should I not have concern for terrorists? Should I not have concern for your grandmother, aunt, brother, next door neighbor? Like, I think he's just leaving this open with a question so that you and I constantly have to come back to a place where we wrestle with just how big God's grace really is. Just how big God's forgiveness and his compassion really, really is. Because it's easy for us to know that we spent three days and three nights in the belly of a fish begging God for one more chance. And then sit outside of a city in judgment because we're upset that God gave them a second chance. Who do you sit in judgment of? Who do you and I sit in judgment of convinced that God's grace is enough for us, but it's probably not enough for them? Should I not have concern for fill in the blank? I, I, don't know, I don't know who that person is for you. Because what we tend to do in our lives is we tend to label people we tend to isolate them, push them away by calling them names that take away any ability for us to connect to them on any relational level, right? We want to remove any appearance that we could possibly have anything in common with them. We want to remove any connection that we could possibly have with them in any way. And so we just, you know, we say all kinds of things. Well, they're just hellions. She's a floozy. He's a drunk. They're weird. We call them by all kinds of names that I've already filled in the blank with. They're immigrants. They're like whatever. You just fill in the blank with your category. Guess what? They're not. They're men and women created by God and loved by God just as much as you are and just as entitled to God's grace as you are, just as in need of forgiveness by God as you are, as I am. And so God just kind of leaves this question hanging at the end of Jonah 4 so that you and I would be confronted with the idea that God is bigger, more compassionate, slow to anger, more gracious than we sometimes want him to be. This story of Jonah, as I said all the way back in week one, is not about 
fish. I want you to think back to what we've talked about over these four weeks. God called Jonah to Nineveh. God goes with Jonah in his disobedience towards Tarshish. God sends a storm to get his attention. God sends a fish to swallow Jonah. God hears Jonah's cries and responds to his call for a second chance. God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh again. God hears the cries of the Ninevites and forgives them and doesn't destroy them. God sends a plant to Jonah to cover him. God sends a worm to destroy the plant to teach him yet another lesson. The story is that God calls and God goes and God sends and God hears. God pursues. But is God pursuing Jonah? Or is God pursuing the people of Nineveh? I've asked a couple people to help me. I want you guys to come on up if you would. If I asked you earlier, come on up. Let's see if we can depict this a little a little better. I'm going to ask you, Blake, just stand right here. Gerald, you and Christy and Brent, you guys just stand right here for a second. I'm going to play the part of God. It's just an easier, more believable option than anybody else on stage. <clears throat> and I want to tell you a story. Because sometimes we're not really sure how the story of God plays out. But I want to tell you the story about a man named Edward Kimball. All right? Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher years and years and years and years ago. And he had a Sunday school class of rowdy boys. I know you can't relate to that, right? This is Pastor Blake. He leads our children's ministry. We have rowdy boys in our children's ministry, some of which are mine. But Edward Kimball was teaching a Sunday school class filled with rowdy boys. And if he was ever discouraged by them, we don't know that. If he ever wanted to give up, we don't know that. But he just knew that he had the love of God in his life. He had received the forgiveness of God, the compassion of God. And so he wanted to continually present the gospel to those rowdy boys. But there was a boy in his class who just did not seem to get it. Like he just didn't seem to understand the message of the gospel. And so one day, Edward Kimball went to this boy's uh, shoe store that he, he kind of did the stock at. And so he was in the stock room, and Edward Kimball ministered to this young boy that was in his Sunday school class outside of the Sunday school class in the stock room of a shoe store. And on that day, in that stock room, this man named Dwight L. Moody received the message of the gospel. Now, D.L. Moody was a, a great minister of the gospel for a long time. He took the gospel to two continents. He proclaimed to thousands and thousands and thousands of people the good news of Jesus Christ. Edward Kimball did not proclaim the gospel to thousands and thousands of people. He proclaimed it to a rowdy Sunday school room filled with boys, including Dwight L. Moody. Now, Dwight L. Moody, in his different ministry and in the things that he was doing, he was doing all this different ministry. One day, under his ministry, came this other young man. Christy's playing the part of a young man this morning. His name was Wilbur Chapman. And Wilbur Chapman received the good news of the gospel. The forgiveness of God, the compassion of God, the grace of God in the ministry of D.L. Moody. And so what happened is that Chapman became an evangelist. And he too began to go and preach and proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that thousands and thousands and thousands of people could receive. This guy didn't proclaim it to thousands. This guy didn't proclaim it to the thousands that would hear it. But this guy did. 
And so he goes and proclaims the gospel and the good news to thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Now, one day in one of his different ministry endeavors, as he's presenting the gospel, there's a professional sports player who came and heard the message. He had a day off, and he heard the message of the gospel. His name was Billy Sunday. And Billy Sunday receives the message of the gospel. And he says, hey, I want to make sure that I live my life in such a way that proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ. And so Billy Sunday, too, began to proclaim the good news. And he starts to work under the ministry of, of Chapman. And then Chapman takes the pastor of a large church. And Billy Sunday continues to do these evangelistic crusades. And there comes a day when Billy Sunday's preaching. And a man hears the message by the name of Mordecai Ham. Now, Mordecai Ham may not be a name that many of us know. But Mordecai Ham received the good news of the gospel. And then Mordecai Ham takes the good news of the gospel into revivals in towns across the United States of America. And one day he shows up in Charlotte, North Carolina. And he takes a hearse and he advertises that the revivals come into the school across from the high school. A bunch of high school boys decide to show up one day. In the midst of that service, there's a young teenager, lanky, sandy blonde hair, who hears the message of the gospel. He had decided he didn't really want to receive the gospel, but the way it was laid out, he decides to turn his heart towards God. His name was Billy Graham. Billy Graham has now preached the gospel. He's up in age, obviously, maybe near the end of his life. He's now preached the gospel to over 2.2 billion people. What if all the way back here, God was pursuing the heart of Billy Graham. What if all the way back here, God was pursuing the heart of Billy Sunday? What if God was pursuing each individual heart, not just these, but the thousands and then millions and billions of people that would hear the gospel message? The question is not, was God pursuing Jonah or people, the people of the city of Nineveh? The answer is yes. God is pursuing every human being that lives, has lived, or will live on the face of the earth because he's a gracious and compassionate God who is slow to anger. God is not trying to destroy you. He's not trying to trick you. And he's not trying to destroy the people that you know that you are convinced need to be destroyed. God loves them, just like he loves you. And he's pursuing someone out here with the gospel. And he knew that the way to get it to them the quickest was to start with a Sunday school teacher who could minister to a little boy in a stock room, who could preach the gospel to someone who would hear it, who would begin evangelizing and would preach the gospel to a baseball player, who would preach the gospel to another man, who would hold a revival and preach the gospel to another man, who could reach them. Here's the reality. Somewhere in a story like this, you fit. And if you and I aren't careful, we tend to take on the mindset of Jonah, and we worry about our plant and our lean-to and the worm that killed our plant. Because we're convinced that the story of God is all about us and our comfort and our forgiveness. But what if God's pursuit of Jonah was in pursuit 
of the city of Nineveh, which was in pursuit of the people that the people of Nineveh knew. I think God is asking you and I the same question today that he asked to Jonah at the end of Jonah chapter 4. Shouldn't I have concern for your sister, your coworker, your next door neighbor, terrorists? I mean, like, the answer is yes. You should, God. And so I'm going to pray in just a second, and the band's going to come, and they're going to lead us in worship. They're going to lead us in a song. And on the front of the stage, there's a bunch of these little post-it notes. There are different colors, different sizes, different shapes. You have a pen in the seat back in front of you or on the seat that you're sitting in. And if you feel comfortable, what I'm going to ask you to do is take the pen that's been provided for you today, and I'm going to ask you to come up here somewhere on the front of the stage and write the name or a couple of names that you think God is concerned for, and he may just want to use you to reach them. It can be a person's name that you know. I would encourage you to do that. Write as specifically as you can. It may be a group of people that you feel like have been kind of isolated and, and, and distanced from your, your sphere of influence or the culture at large. And maybe you want to be a part of the solution by loving them into God's family. Whatever you choose to do, I want you to take that pen and I want you just to write their name or the label by which they're known. And I want you to take it and I want you to lay, just stick it somewhere on one of these front walls. We're going to leave them up there as long as we can. Anytime that you know one of those people made a decision for Jesus Christ, come and take their name off the wall. Because we're going to pray over these names until we believe that they've come into a saving knowledge of a compassionate, gracious, merciful, forgiving God. Let's pray. God, we thank you today for the story of Jonah. We thank you today, God, that you are a God who loves, you're a God who saves, you're a God who forgives, you're a God who is merciful. God, I thank you that you're writing bigger stories than our individual stories. And so today, God, I ask you to help us to see our lives not as the end, but maybe as the beginning of someone else's story. God, what if your pursuit of us is ultimately in pursuit of someone else? Could we use what we've been given to reach someone else who does not know you. God, help us today. Bring to the forefront of our minds those who need to know you. Should you not be concerned for... Help us to fill in the blank today, God, with these names. Let us write them on these notes and stick them to this wall as a symbolic gesture that we are making ourselves available to be used by you to reach them. In Jesus' name I pray. Thanks again for listening today. If you would like more information about today's message or about our church, we invite you to visit us at cantonchurch.com or facebook.com slash cantonchurchga.